Um, over the years, I've known a lot of a lot of people who get upset because they don't like being told what to do. Anybody? Come on now. We got all the time in the world. I can think of a couple of examples that will testify to the truth of that statement. And, and, and the first one that I want to share with you will tell you that I'm one of those people that don't particularly like being told what to do. Confession time. I absolutely hate wearing seatbelts. And, and and before, and, and I know Brenda's Brenda's already back there saying, "I've I've been after him th- for this for twenty five years, thirty years probably." She is always trying to get me to wear my seatbelt, and I I hate it as much today as the first time I buckled into one. Uh, but before you start forming opinions about my ignorance and stubbornness, let me explain to you why. I hate to wear seatbelts. Whether or not you have thought about this, I am part of the generation that unfortunately saw seatbelts first being put into automobiles. How many of you would say you were there with me? Okay. Uh, Eventually, seatbelts became a standard uh, safety feature on all new cars, but I'm going to take you back a little bit. I remember back in 1964... My dad bought a new 1964 Mercury Park Lane. Now, for those of you who don't remember the Park Lane, it had a window in the back. You remember those? Well, the 1964 Mercury Park Lane was the first model of that car that came with front seat seat belts. And so, you know, I was always in the back seat. I didn't have to wear a seat belt. They didn't start putting them in rear seats of cars until 1968, but unfortunately, in 1968, my dad tried to trade for a new car every four years, and he brought a 1968 Mercury Marquis Brome. How many of you remember those? They were about 50 feet long. <laughs> they were about 50 feet long and got about four miles a gallon. Had that big old 460 cubic inch engine in it. And they put seat belts in the back seat. Now, my folks never made me wear them back then. They never wore theirs in the front seat. Uh, Even though the cars had them, we didn't wear them. And some of these young families around here, I'm looking at this look of horror on your faces to think that that we would never wear seat belts. Let me tell you what, it didn't stop there. We didn't have car seats for our kids. We just threw them in the back and tell them not to kill each other and went on our way, you know? (laughs) Yeah. That Mercury Marquis Brome even had room back in the in the back near the back window. You could crawl up there and lay if you wanted to, and I did that a couple of times. So anyway, for those of you who are terrified at this shocking revelation about your pastor, you're probably wondering why didn't they always have seat belts in cars? Well, I got to wondering that myself, and I looked it up. And you want to know the the most logical answer? Automobile manufacturers came to the realization that safety doesn't sell. Safety doesn't sell. I got proof of it right here. Listen to this. Ford Motor Company promoted safety features including seat belts in the 1956 model year. The same year, General Motors emphasized styling and performance in its cars and outsold Ford that year by 190,000 automobiles, which was three times the difference in the previous year. Safety didn't sell. Now, only government intervention would eventually prod manufacturers to make the belt, seat belt standard equipment on all new cars. And, and without state and federal requirements, there would be little demand for these restraints. And not only that, but originally, and I think even to this day, only individual states can require that pe- people in a vehicle wear seat belts and then only in the front seat. Did you know that? You don't have to wear them in the back seat. 
in some states. Now, now here's the rest of it. The Society of Automotive Engineers came out with a study, and this is the one that I hate. They estimated that seat belts and wearing them, I don't mind the seat belts, I just don't like wearing them. I just wanted to share that with you. They could reduce severe and serious injuries by more than 60%. Now back to my reasoning. The state of Kansas did not require the wearing of seat belts until 1984. Now, 1984, I was 28 years old, and I was a full-time pickup-driving farmer, right? And as a farmer, most of my driving was a quarter-mile to three-and-a-half-mile drives, I mean, who in the world is going to fasten a seatbelt driving from one irrigation to engine to another one a half a mile away? Now, I will tell you this. I have mastered ignoring that little dinging bell. I can go all day with that bell dinging, and it, I don't even notice it. I've perfected the art. But I can get in my car with Brenda, and it'll start dinging, and she'll say, are you going to fasten your seatbelt? And I'll say, maybe. I just don't like wearing seatbelts. I don't like the feeling of confinement. What I'm saying is I never got into the habit of it. Now, the rest of the story is that I realize that the chances of me being injured or dying in a car wreck are much higher if I'm not wearing seatbelt protection. And I'm guessing that you figured out by now that I'm not going to preach an entire message on my hatred of having to wear seatbelts, so I'll move on to my other point, and it involves you. Um, I I just wanted to discuss my dislike of, of being told what to do before discussing this next one, which is, as I said, much more applicable to many of you here this morning, particularly those of you who rode motorcycles. Anyone care to guess what it is? It, <laughs> it's called the helmet law. Now, I know of a lot of motorcycle owners who have been up in arms over the years because they don't like being told by the government that they are required to wear a motorcycle helmet when riding a motorcycle. And, obviously, I can sympathize with that argument because of my feelings about seatbelts. No one likes being told what to do, especially in America. You know why? Because we value freedom more than we value safety. Um, I think I can say this, because I'm concluding me in it. We're part of what is called the headstrong bunch. Just, just out of curiosity, how many of you who rode a motorcycle this morning wore a helmet? How many of you didn't? Ah, I'm preaching to the right people here. Yeah. We're part of this headstrong bunch bent on doing what we want, and we don't like anyone ordering us around. I mean, the thought someone caring more about safety than freedom. Right? Well, if you've ever seen a motorcycle accident where the rider wasn't wearing a helmet, and I'm guessing it's probably a good thing, Leonard, that uh, Nancy was wearing a helmet yesterday. For those of you who didn't hear, there was a motorcycle accident yesterday involving some of our soldiers, and Nancy was injured. Uh, let me tell you something, folks. You remember Tuesday night, Pastor Philip was talking about angels encompassing themselves around us and providing safety for us? I am convinced that God's angels were watching over Nancy and that group of motorcyclists yesterday. What could have been just an absolute horrific tragedy and it's still bad enough because there's a guy laying in the hospital with internal injuries. But from what I hear, they didn't even think he'd, he'd live through getting the chopper there to life watch him to Wichita. So you see, there are things that are out there that are designed 
to provide protection for us. And some of us just ignore those protections. Um, The point that I'm gradually working toward, obviously, is this. Whether we like those two laws or not, whether we agree with them or not, or whether we choose to obey them or not, does not negate their power, nor our choice to obey them or, or not, I should say it this way, and our choice to obey them or not can have significant consequences. Right? Go with me in your Bibles to the book of Ephesians, chapter number 6, if you would please. If you don't have a Bible and you have the Version Bible app on your smartphone, you can go there and punch events and it will bring up Trinity Faith Church. And when it brings up Trinity Faith Church, you'll have my sermon outline right there for you to follow along with me, along with the Scriptures. But you may be thinking, Pastor, where are you taking us with this? What does all of this have to do with a gospel message on a Sunday morning? Well, if you're thinking that, I'm glad you're thinking it because here's the point. God has a helmet law. Two very familiar passages of Scripture that I want to read as I share with you this message this morning. The first one is found in Ephesians chapter number 6. And I want to begin with verse number 12, which says, For our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the world powers of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavens. This is why you must take up the full armor of God, so that you may be able to resist in the evil day and having prepared everything to take your stand, Stand, therefore, with truth like a belt around your waist, righteousness like armor on your chest, your feet sandaled with readiness for the gospel of peace. In every situation, take the shield of faith, and with it, you will be able to extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation. And the sword of the Spirit, which is God's Word, and with every prayer and request, pray at all times in the Spirit and stay alert in this with all perseverance and intercession for all the saints. Now quickly turn over with me just a few pages to the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter number 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter number 5, where the Apostle Paul gives us some more admonitions. Verse 8 says, but since we are of the day, we must be sober and put the armor of faith and love on our chests and put on a helmet of the hope of salvation. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. How many of you are thankful for salvation this morning? It's the helmet that God has given us to wear. You know, it feels good to be able to breeze through life without restrictions, living any way that we want to live, going where we want to go, doing whatever feels good to us with no one to tell us that we can't do that. Right? We, we like to make our own decisions. We like to call our own shots. But the problem with mankind has always been pride that carries to the point of being independent. There isn't one of us, even in this congregation this morning, who, who would want to be restricted in our movements, and we certainly don't want to have someone ordering us around all the time. But friends, if you think about it, that's where man's rebellion began in the first place. Clear back at the beginning, in the, in the book of Genesis, we read a story about two people whose name were Ad, names were Adam and Eve. They fell from God's grace because of disobedience. They lived in the Garden of Eden, and because of their own pride and and a desire 
to be free from just one restriction that God had given to them. He told them that they could eat of any tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil they must not eat. For if they did, they would surely die. So the enemy comes along. You know the story. The enemy comes along and he says, Did God tell you you couldn't eat of this tree? Well, he told us that if we did, we'd die. Now, let me just say something here. They didn't know what that meant. They'd never experienced death in any form or fashion. God told them that they would die, and the, the enemy says, Oh, hey, he's not going to do that to you. How many of you have ever heard that before? Oh, oh or how many of you have ever given that excuse before? Oh, God's a good God. He's not going to let that happen to me just because, I, just because I mess up a little bit. Just because I do what I want to do just this one time, God's not going to make me pay a penalty like that for something so small and insignificant. It's kind of like him. We, we just kind of rebel. That's what we do when God says, you can't do this, you can't do that. You know why God tells us those things? Because he knows what's best for us. He doesn't, he's not some arbitrary rule giver who's on a power trip who, who wants to just throw out rules to see if we, like his puppets, will, will do as he tells us to do. He does it because he knows what's best for us. He knows what's for our good. He knows what's for our harm. And I'm, as I'm sure many of you, like myself, have done... We've made a few choices that we've had to pay consequences for. Some of us still may be paying consequences for some of the choices we've made in the past that had to do with us rearing up and saying, nobody's going to tell me what to do. Any of you ever done that? Well, back to Adam and Eve. They decided to do their own thing after being tempted by their own lust, after being enticed by Satan and the forbidden fruit of that tree, and they ate of it. And as a result, they fell greatly, they died spiritually, and they began the process of dying physically at the very moment that they disobeyed God. And from that time till now, every one of us have had to be a part of paying the penalty for the choice that Adam and Eve made. They couldn't help themselves anymore after that choice. The freedom that they once had was gone forever, and they would never be able to get it back on their own. All of mankind from that day to now has had to pay for Adam and Eve's moment of independence. And the price tag for their sin has been a very high one. The perfect nature that God intended for man, it was gone forever. And like it or not, every one of us are born into that sin that Adam and Eve brought into the world as a result of their choice. Now, here's the good news. God still loved Adam and Eve. And he loves every one of us so much. He loves us so much that he sent his only begotten son. His sinless perfect son to take the penalty of your sin and mine upon himself and die a, a cruel death which was the penalty for that sin so that we might have eternal life. That's the gospel translation of John 3.16 according to the version of Terry. That's a high price. God gave his sinless, perfect son to pay the price for our sin. Now God knew this from before the beginning of time, before Adam and Eve ever existed. He had this plan in place. 
And God created Adam and Eve for the purpose of communicating with them and communicating with every one of us who would be born after that. And it's because of that desire for God's communion with us that he laid out this plan, a plan that would somehow make it possible for us, each and every one of us, to be restored to God, to be reconciled to God, whatever you want to call it. He paid for your helmet and mine. That helmet is salvation. Made it possible for us to be saved, and he did it through the shedding of his own blood. (coughs) Excuse me. Now, perhaps you've noticed that mankind still fights against God's laws. We don't like being restricted. We as human beings, we don't like to hear it when we're told that there's only one way to heaven. That there's only one way to a happy, completely fulfilled life without regrets when it's over. One way to please God. We don't, people don't want to be forced to wear this helmet that God has provided. I want you to think about this. God could have chosen to just let each one of us do our own thing. He could have done that. But where would that have taken us? You see, and I know, I know the Bible tells us that we are created in the image of God, which for many people thinks, well, they think that means, well, that means that we think like God thinks, right? Did you know that the inclination of man's heart is not toward God? It's not toward God. If you go clear back to Genesis chapter 6, verses 5 and 6, when the, it says, When the Lord saw that man's wickedness was widespread on the earth and that every scheme his mind thought of was nothing but evil all the time, the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth. And he was grieved in his heart. So... Knowing that, rather than God just saying, you guys blew it. Do whatever you want to do. Doesn't matter to me. He says, no, I'm not going to make it that easy. I'm going to send my son. I'm going to send my son, and he's going to take the penalty for their sin upon himself so that I can give to them a helmet that they can wear that will save them. God paid the price. He paid a price he didn't owe to pay a debt that I couldn't pay. That sounds like a song, doesn't it, Doug? (laughs) Thank God for his love and mercy. Aren't you thankful that he loved us that much, that he didn't let us go our own way? The Word says that we have to wear that helmet as we go through this life if we want to make heaven our home someday. That helmet is the helmet of salvation that Paul talked about in these two different passages of Scripture. So with all of that said, here's what I want to talk to you about. What does a helmet do? What does a helmet do and why is this matter of salvation so very important? Well, just let me say this. We'll get this out of the way. I don't have to spend a whole lot of time on talking about this one. But the first thing that a helmet will do, the most obvious answer, is that it's going to keep you from burning in hell. Completely separate from God. That, it's going to keep you from that. If you're saved, you don't have to worry about buying fire insurance. You're on your way to heaven. And thanks be to God for that. But your helmet of salvation does much more than that. Your helmet of salvation is a protection of the head and the mind against false doctrine. When Satan tempts you, when he attempts to get into your head with evil thoughts, it's the helmet of salvation that will fend off his attacks. God's Spirit lives in us. His Spirit quickens us. His spirit that takes residence within us at the moment of salvation reveals to us and reminds us of what the Word says, and we can use that to drive Satan away. Let me give you just a few examples. No weapon formed against you shall be made to prosper. 
Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. There is no temptation taking you but such as is common to man. But God is faithful in that with the temptation he will make a way to escape that you may be able to bear up against it. There's the word. And I, and I encourage people who are struggling with sin issues in their lives. They come to my office. They're struggling with this or that and the other. And, and, and I tell them, what are you doing to resist the temptations that you're falling prey to? Oh, well, uh, I'm trying to abstain. I'm trying to not do it anymore. Well, that's fine, but that's not freedom. What we're after is the freedom that's promised to us in the Word. He whom the Son sets free is free indeed. We're not about abstaining from anything. We're about walking in the freedom that Jesus has called us into. The helmet of salvation will quicken in our hearts what the Word says, and we can use that Word just as Jesus did when Satan tempted him three times out in the wilderness to overcome the fiery darts of the wicked one. We use it to protect us. In times of battle, not recent battle, but back in, in the days when they dressed up in armor, metal armor, to go into battle, the helmet was also used then for keeping their head upright. If you've ever seen pictures of some of those knights, they had a helmet that was attached to a, a, a shoulder piece that draped down over their shoulders in order to keep their head up in all circumstances. Whatever they encountered, their eyes were always looking ahead to see what the enemy was getting ready to do. The helmet will do that for us. It's our salvation, friends, that helps us hold our head up high when the enemy thinks he's finally defeated us. Aren't you grateful for that? There's one other thing about the helmet as it was used in Bible times. You may not have heard this one before, and I was kind of surprised myself to come across it. But before a soldier would go into battle, he would, before he would put on his helmet to go into battle, he would anoint his helmet with oil for three different reasons. One, that it would shine brightly and blind his enemy. You know, I could think I could preach a whole sermon on that right there. Blinding the enemy and making your helmet shine brightly. It was also to ensure that it, the helmet would not begin to corrode and therefore it would last longer. And it also made it slick so that when the enemy's arrows hit it, it would repel the blows. Now think about this. How many of you this morning, you said you're thankful for salvation. How many of you, just raise your hand. How many of you are saved? You, you, you've been saved by the blood of the Lamb? Now how many of you, with your hands still up, would say that the enemy tempts you all the time? I wish that wasn't part of the package. I wish that when we got saved, he'd just go away and hide somewhere and forget about us. But you know what? I've even found as a pastor, I think he turns up the heat of temptation on me more than any of you. Because if he can get me to stumble and fall, he's going to get, it's going to be that much easier for people who listen to the stuff I tell them from the pulpit to stumble and fall. If your helmet of salvation, friends, is in place, and if you live under the anointing of the Holy Spirit of God, Satan cannot get to you easily. You know what some of the things that happen in our lives? We make it easy for Satan to get to us. We make it easy for him. We justify. We rationalize. We say, oh, you know, just this one time isn't going to hurt anything. How many of you have ever said that to yourself? And how many of you would honestly say to me that after you did it the first time, it was easier to do the second time? It's the way that he works. He may get just a foot in the door the first time. But he's on his way to getting hip deep, shoulder high, and in your head. That's the way he works. But if you have the helmet of salvation, 
and you're walking under the anointing of the Holy Spirit, you don't make it easy for him to get access to you. Our lives have to be anointed by the presence of the Holy Spirit. Our heart must be anointed, as the guy saying earlier, by being washed in the blood of the Lamb. Why? Satan's attacks can't cross the bloodline. Oh, he's, he, he, he makes it possible. Philip told us this earlier this week, and probably some of you, like myself, already knew it. The Bible talks about Satan and, and identifies him as being an accuser of the brethren. Have you ever heard that term before? Here's what it means. As part of the family of God, all you brethren and sisters, we're brethren and sis, brothers and sisters in the Lord, right? So he's the accuser of the brothers and sisters. He's not out there accusing those that have never been a part of the family. But those of us who are part of the family of God, he's watching us and he sees us slip up and you know what he does? He goes before the Father and he says, that Doug Hibbs, I know all about him. I know some things about him that, God, you may not even know. And and I saw him doing this and this and this and this. And I thought he belonged to you. And you know what God says, Doug? God says, I don't know what you're talking about because his sins are covered by the blood of my son. Never to be held against him again. Friends, let me tell you something. The forgiveness that Jesus offered is not just for our sins that we've committed or the sins that we are presently involved in. It's for sin past, present, and future. And as long as we are covered by the blood of Jesus, he can't get to us. Hallelujah. Now, with all these wonderful things that a helmet does, Why wouldn't we want to put on a helmet as we go through life? Why wouldn't we? Well, I can tell you why. It's because of self-pride. It's because of a desire for independence from any limiting factor. We, not we, mankind wants to be his own God. He wants to be the master of his own destiny. He just refuses to admit or see the dangers that lie in that. The danger to a motorcycle rider is real and it's deadly. He or she throws caution to the wind in the vain belief that it could never happen to me because I'm a careful rider. You know what? Let's go back to the seatbelt illustration because I'm not a biker. 1984... Brenda and I were on our way to a family reunion at Thanksgiving in Denver, Colorado. The family reunion was scheduled for a hotel in Aurora, and we were driving into Denver at about 5.30 in the evening. How many of you know what that means? It means rush hour. About five minutes before we got to the hotel, we're in our 1982 Chevy Blazer. And Brenda says, Terry, fasten your seatbelt. And I said, oh, Brenda, I'm a safe driver. I mean, I didn't tell her this because she would argued with me. But <laughs> she knew what I was thinking. I didn't fasten my seatbelt. Now, she's got her seatbelt on. The three kids in the back seat, they got their seatbelts on. We pull into the hotel driveway, and a car hit the back two inches of my rear bumper, going about 40 mile an hour. And it flipped that Chevy S10 Blazer on its roof. Now, here's the rest of the story. The four people in the vehicle with seatbelts on They had a few cuts, a few bruises. I think Brenda was probably saying bad words directed at me. But the driver that didn't have the seatbelt on, they were flying in a life watch chopper to take me to the hospital. 
It was kind of funny. I've got to tell you this part. I told you it was a family reunion. EMS came. Everybody's out of the car except for me. They can't move me because they're concerned about my injuries. And the EMS gets frustrated with the crowd of people around the car. And he stands up and he says, I want everyone who's not an angler to get out of here. (laughs) And everybody just stayed there. Well, I'm hurting. They think, they think my spleen is ruptured. They don't know what other internal injuries I have. They think I have a broke. They know I have a broken wrist. They said that. His wrist is broken, and we don't know what else is going on, but we're bringing in a life watch chopper to take him to Denver General Hospital. They put me in that chopper, and it's about dark. Well, it is dark by that time, and I'm looking down as I'm laying in the chopper, and I'm seeing the lights of Denver, Colorado. Now, keep in mind, I'm not yet in the ministry, right? I'm still a farmer, a hard-headed one from southwest Kansas who doesn't wear his seatbelt. I look out of that chopper, and I prayed. And unbeknownst to me, out of our family that was gathered there, they had already made contact literally with people all over the world who were praying for me. And I looked out of that chopper at those lights of that city and I said, God, if you'll heal me, I'll give my life in totality for your service. Now, I'd already been called into ministry years before. I was just still farming, waiting on the call to manifest itself. Long story much shorter. We get to the hospital. I'm waiting in the ER. If you've ever been to Denver General Hospital in the emergency room on a Friday evening or on a Thursday evening, Wednesday evening before a holiday, I guess it was. I waited and I waited and I waited. And I thought, man, I got internal injuries. That's what they told me. Why am I waiting so long? They'd done the the CAT scans, and they'd done the MRIs, and they'd done all of this testing, and I'm thinking, they're still not doing anything. Finally, a doctor comes in the room, and he says, Mr. Engler, are you drunk? (laughs) And I said, no, I'm not drunk. Why? And he said, because usually the only people that go through what you've just gone through and have no injuries are because they're inebriated. Now, did you catch what I just said? He said, no injuries. My wrist wasn't broken. I had no internal injuries. He said, we don't know what's happened. But those EMS technicians said that you were bleeding internally and that your wrist was broken. There's not a thing wrong with you, and as soon as you can get somebody here, you can go. Hallelujah. Now, where was I? Yeah, here it is. It could never happen to me. Well, it did happen to me. Now, the danger for every farmer who, like I used to be, never thought about driving short distances should require the wearing of a seatbelt. I found this in my statistics, and I'm sure some of you have already heard this. Do you know where most traffic accidents happen? Well, don't act like you knew that before I'm getting ready to say this. Most people assume that a larger amount of car accidents occur in the city rather than in rural areas. And numbers-wise, they do, but percentage-wise. Statistics collected and published by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration show that the greatest number of traffic-related injuries and fatalities occur on rural roads within five miles of home. Now, you would think somebody as smart as me would be able to understand that, wouldn't you? The reason I'm saying that is when I got home, I still didn't wear a seatbelt. I wanted to have it my way. I was, I was arrogant. 
I I was filled with self-pride and a desire for independence. I was the one that said it could never happen to me. Go tell that to every careful driver or careful rider lying in a cemetery somewhere. Is the consequence of a wreck without a helmet or without a seatbelt worth the freedom of just simply feeling the wind blowing freely through your hair that you probably lost a long time ago? (laughs) Is it not worth it to wear a seatbelt and save the two and a half seconds that it takes to fasten it in? Is it worth the chance of living life as a paraplegic just to be able to have a little more comfort, a little more independence? You see, friends, that's the real question that needs to be asked when it comes to living without the helmet that God provides. What are the consequences? And are those consequences, whatever they may be, worth the risk? You know, I may be going out on a limb here and saying this, but any writer who uses his or her head, so to speak, would probably agree with the safety provided by wearing a helmet and its purpose in protecting his or her head. But in spite of that, and the same can be said for seatbelt wearers and non-seatbelt wearers, our pride won't let us do it. We don't even realize it's pride. We just want to do what we want to do. We want to do whatever feels good, no matter what the risk. And I've got to admit, and this is from personal experience, that when you're in a car accident and that car is sitting on its top in the middle of a road, if I'd have just listened to my wife five minutes earlier, now thank God he he healed me and and he spared me. But I, I could have avoided that if I'd have listened to her and now... 34 years later, if I'd still listen to her, the first time that the bell starts dinging and put on my seatbelt. You see, that's the way it is with those of us who need salvation. Is the certainty of an eternal punishment in the fire of hell not worth putting on the helmet of salvation? Of course it isn't. The pain, the agony, the hopelessness, the emptiness of a life without Christ, are they worth refusing, those things worth refusing to accept the salvation that Jesus offers to us so freely? Of course not. So why do we refuse it? Why why are there men and women and boys and girls who refuse to put on God's helmet? Because they have too much pride to let God sit on the throne of their life. Have you ever seen a picture of a throne? How many seats does it have? There's only room for one on the throne. And you know, you've seen that bumper sticker that says, I prayed before I left and asked God to ride shotgun. Forget that. He wants to be the driver of your life. He wants to sit on the throne of your life, and if there's only room for one, it's either you or him. Who are you going to put there? Trust me when I tell you that I know from having visited with some very friends, dear friends and relatives very recently who have made a decision even after wearing the helmet of salvation that God has provided them, they have now made a decision to take that helmet off because they no no longer want God to tell them what they can and can't do or what they should or shouldn't do. And here's the, here's the worst part of it. And they, these are conversations that's happened in the last month of my life with some very dear people in my life. They've told me that they no longer believe in God. They've walked away from God. And they, lo- they told me verbatim, they are the enlightened ones. Here's the terms that they use talking about me and most of us in this room. You're either mentally ill, bipolar, or deluded. Now that breaks my heart. 
I can't even tell you how much that breaks my heart. But their logical thinking processes have elevated them to this position of being smarter than the rest of us. Let me tell you what the smartest man who ever lived says about that in Proverbs chapter 16, verses 17 and 18. He says, the highway of the upright avoids evil. The one who guards his way protects his life. Pride comes before destruction. And an arrogant spirit before a fall. Let me tell you something, friends. When they referred to me as either being deluded, bipolar, or mentally ill, the first thought that came to my mind was, you arrogant fools. You arrogant fools, you have tasted and you have seen that the Lord is good, and now you're choosing to take off that helmet of protection that he's given you from the enemy, and you're telling me I'm the one that's deluded or bipolar or mentally ill? Those who wear God's helmet of salvation, they know how to stay upright on the highway of life. They've discovered the way to reach their eternal reward in the safety of the arms of Jesus. And those who, review, who refuse to obey God's helmet law, on the other hand, they're riding on into oblivion, allowing their pride to lead them to destruction. And every little bump in their road of life will only cause them to fall further and further away from God. You see, friends, the problem is sinners barrel down the road of life without the helmet of salvation on, and they do it because they can't see the dangers that lay ahead. They can see only as far as their natural eyes can see. They forget that there's no promise of tomorrow. They can't see the circumstances that may be already forming an accident that will kill or injure them just down the road. And while the road that they can see in front of them, it may look safe. It may look easy. The truth of the matter is it's filled with potholes and rocks and all sorts of dangerous stumbling blocks. They may even be able to ride for many miles without a care. But there's only one time that it takes. And that one time can make it ever too late. Everlasting too late. You see, the difference between the one who wears a helmet and the one who doesn't, the difference between the one who wears a seatbelt and the one who doesn't, is that the ones who wear the helmet or the seatbelt may encounter the same potholes, the same rocks, the same stumbling blocks that every one of us who do wear them encounter. But the difference is, we have faith in one who goes with us even when danger or death may be ahead. He still goes with us even through the valley of the shadow of death and our faith in his promise that on the other side of that valley is a place that he has prepared for all who have trusted in him and whose faith and confidence remain in him. For them there is no question, no fear of what the hereafter holds. I told one of those friends, and you've seen it a lot, it's been discussed a lot on social media. I told one of those friends, I said, okay, so here's the deal. What if I'm right and you're wrong? Let me share with you what the answer was that he gave to me. It'll break your heart. He said to me, he says, do you remember what it was like before you were born? Of course not. So why would you believe you'll have any brain activity or any kind of life after you're dead? Do you see the spiritual arrogance in that? And I'm thinking, 
is this the same person that I've known who walked closely with Jesus, who was literally a magnet to draw people, not to himself, but to Jesus. And I'm hearing these words come out of his mouth. Now, his answer, if you think about it, it may sound logical to some. But what if Jesus is right? What if Jesus' promise about eternal life is right? What if there is a heaven? And what if there's a hell awaiting mankind after they die here in the physical body? What then? You see, friend, every time that you refuse to put on God's helmet, you're gambling with eternity. Every time you walk away from God's call to come to Him and to give your life to Him, it's like, it's like casting dice in a game that you'll never come up a winner in. You're going to lose every time. And then the ultimate question is, so when's your last ride or your last drive going to be? Boy, don't you wish we knew the answer to that question? We don't. We could drive out of this church parking lot today and God forbid be hit by a bus and we're there, eternity. And, and as, I, as I was thinking about that and thinking about these friends of mine that I've been having these conversations with, do you suppose that those who have made that decision to either walk away from the helmet of salvation that God offers or those who have never responded to the helmet of salvation that God offers, you suppose after they're dead and gone and they're in their place of eternal punishment, do you suppose they'd like to come back and have another opportunity? You see, friends, what happens is when we see the reality All of that logic doesn't matter anymore. What matters is, did you have faith in the one who gave you the opportunity to wear the helmet? You heard the story of the guy in the hurricane praying and praying and praying as he was sitting on his roof atop with his dog trying to avoid the high waters God, why didn't you come and stop this? Did you see those two boats and that helicopter? And you said, no, I'm going to stick it out. Don't, don't put yourself in a position where you have to ask questions later. We used to sing an old, church, old hymn in the church. The old account was settled long ago. Settle the account now. Settle the account now so that when you walk out of these church doors today, you can know that you know that you know that your life is hidden with Christ in God and that he's going to go with you no matter what the potholes, no matter what the rocks, no matter what the stumbling blocks are. He's going to be with you. And if the musicians would come. Here's the deal, friends. God's helmet law carries a higher penalty than that of the states which enforce helmet laws for motorcycles or seat belts, seat belt laws for drivers of automobiles. Yeah, you'll get a fine, but that fine pales in comparison to the penalty of not wearing God's helmet. And with that wearing of his helmet, it carries the promise of eternal life. All you have to do is put it on. And guys, friends of mine, keep it on. Keep it on. Because the truth for every one of us here, no matter if we wear it or we don't, life is filled with those potholes. And everyone is going to encounter a rocky road at some point in their life. I'm here to tell you this morning, you can't afford to travel through life without God's helmet of salvation. Would you bow your heads with me this morning? 
Lord Jesus, such a simple sermon. Lord, I'm guessing that there's not a one of us in this room this morning who don't understand exactly what I'm talking about. But I'm also guessing that there may be some in this room, Lord, who have never made the decision to put that helmet on. Much the same way they may not choose to wear a seatbelt or a, a helmet as they're riding their motorbike. But Lord, the consequences of not wearing this helmet are of eternal significance. And Lord Jesus, I'm asking you this morning to just search every heart in this room today through the, through the visitation of your Holy Spirit walking in our midst. I, I know, God, that a large, large percentage, maybe even all of us sitting in this room this morning, we've already made that decision to wear that helmet of salvation. And if so, I thank you for that. But Lord, I can't close this service this morning without giving someone who may not have made that decision the opportunity to do so. And so, Holy Spirit, I'm asking that you go forth in convicting power, not pointing fingers of judgment, but lovingly drawing people to Jesus so that their eternal destiny can be made secure. With your head's bowed, and please, please, no one looking around. If you're here this morning and you need to put on the helmet of salvation, just quickly raise your hand to the air so I can be praying for you. I see that hand. Are there others? Perhaps you're here this morning and you've at one time worn the helmet of salvation. But through a choice of your will and as a result of your pride, you've made a decision to take it off. Would you just raise your hand this morning? Anyone, anywhere? Thank you. Stand to your feet with me, please. What are you guys playing? I'll fly away. Huh? Okay. Just begin to play. Lord Jesus, you have seen this one who has responded this morning. Lord, you know every detail of the situation. And Lord, I pray that you would let that individual know how very much you love them. That if it would have been just them, them and no one else, you loved them so much you would have still died to provide forgiveness for their sin. That's how great your love is. And I pray today that even as they're standing in that row of chairs, that they would follow that response of the uplifted hand with just a simple prayer saying, Jesus, I know you love me. I know that you came to die for my sin. I ask that you forgive my sin. I ask that you restore to me the joy of salvation. Renew a right spirit within me. And make my eternal destination secure this morning. And I can say that, Lord, because death didn't hold you. You rose again three days later. And because you did, we have the hope of living forever as well. Solely based upon our decision to put the helmet that God provides for us on and wear it and shield us from the effects of the enemy, his temptation, his fiery darts that he fires at us. They will no longer have an effect on us, Lord, as long as we keep that helmet on. And I'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, we're going to dismiss here in just a moment, and there's been a wonderful meal prepared for everyone here. Soldiers have prepared that for us.
We want everybody, if possible, to stay and, and just share in that. And then there'll be some things of voting on the motorcycles, who has the best motorbikes out there. And that's all fun and games. But friends, don't, don't rush this moment. Because decisions made in this moment are, have, have, carry a much more weight, greater weight of importance than any of those other things that we're going to do. And I would encourage you, while the guys are playing here in just a moment, if you'd like to come to this altar, I'd love to have the opportunity to pray with you. And, and you may say, I didn't fall into either one of those categories that you listed a while ago to respond to, Pastor. Well, here, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to expand it. I'm guessing for sure that there are some people who have just been beat up by the devil in recent days. I want to pray with you, too. Because I want you to understand what all God's helmet of salvation provides for you. And if you just begin to speak the word back to the enemy, he's going to see real quick, he's not going to have any success with you. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. What a blessed promise of the word. And it's available to every one of us. You begin to speak the word to him, he can't. He can't have success. How many of you would like to see the devil have less success in your life? Come on now. Come on. Me too. Guys, begin to play. These altars are open. Up to Jesus.
there's power in the name of Jesus. Power. Power to overcome the enemy. Power to live victoriously. Power to live forever. Forever. You know how long that is? Pretty long time. That's what the name of Jesus will do for you. You're dismissed. The guys are going to play. Let's enjoy lunch together, shall we?